0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have a very special guest, David Asset who has created the film called The Mayor, which talks about the very special mayor of Ramallah. And we also have guest host, John, from the Discourse Podcast. Check it out. So David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a filmmaker?
1: Sure. Yeah, I was actually not studying film originally. I went to the University of Michigan and got a degree in Middle Eastern and North African Studies. And then I was studying refugee law at the American University in Cairo and was more interested in doing that kind of work. But as time went on, I started to think that I, at best, would be a, a pretty mediocre <laughs> attorney. Um, I, I didn't really feel like that was going to be a place that I could uh, do much good work. But I always was interested in creative work and started to come of age as a someone interested in film during what was called the DV revolution, which was when basically films could be made on DV tapes instead of film, and documentaries could be shot on prosumer cameras that, it would cost less than two thousand dollars used, and media became much more affordable. And as someone who didn't come from money, that that was really exciting to me. It started to democratize a lot the process of filmmaking, and so that's when I started to get into it. And that's that's what sort of led me along my career path, and and made a bunch of films uh, and was editing also. And editing was what basically got me into this film, in that I was editing a, a documentary by a Palestinian filmmaker named Mahdi Yakubi. And that film was called Off Frame, and the edit was in Ramallah. And it had been a few years since I'd been there, but I was really blown away by how much the city had changed when I had come back, and that it seemed like all of a sudden there were these hipster bars and nightclubs, and the city had free unlimited public Wi-Fi, and there was a Jaguar dealership. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm a, I'm so surprised in part because I'm surprised. you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I've spent a lot of time here yet Ramallah does not look like a sort of the typical representation of a Middle Eastern city or place that you see in Western media. And when I say media I, I don't mean just news, I mean television, entertainment, anything. and and that was it was really uh, amazing to me to be in this environment. And as that continued I I was enjoying myself there and, and and was talking to friends about it and then a year passed and I came back to the states and we showed the finished film and Mahana, the director, was staying with me in New York when he came to New York to screen the film. And I remember one night, I remember asking him, hey, out of curiosity, what's the mayor of Ramallah like? And he was like, oh, you know, he's he's a good guy. He's very charismatic. He's very funny. He's Christian. The mayor of Ramallah has to be Christian by law. It's an old Ottoman law. And I, and I remember just having this sort of light bulb go off over my head thinking, wow, I I really want to know what his job is like. And that's what the genesis of the film idea was.
0: Can you just talk to us a little bit about the political situation, the occupation and Ramallah's legal or national status?
1: So Ramallah is the de facto capital of Palestine in that it's not the the technical capital of Palestine is basically in dispute because the, the leadership of Palestine is basically tied up around the Oslo Accords, which were in the early 90s, saying that the Palestinian Authority would lead the West Bank and that the eventual capital of the Palestinian state would be in East Jerusalem. That's not come to pass yet. And many other parts of the Oslo Accords have not yet come to pass. But what Ramallah is, is the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority. So it acts very much like a capital, despite the Palestinian state not really having the same rights as a state, not having its own currency, not having freedom of movement, not having access to basic infrastructural needs. And that's something that comes up a lot in in the film, is just the the very basic ways in which a mayor of any city would, would normally be able to do their job Vis-a-vis running civic programs or, you know, getting a sewage treatment plant built. These things become very difficult within the context of an occupied country. And the film focuses on not only the, the idea of the position of a mayor, but also the limits of, of, of a mayor's power within the context of, of trying to lead a city that doesn't really have a country.
2: Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was moments like that throughout the entire film where you were watching them deal with these types of questions that you just outlined. And one of the ones that I like right in the first five minutes, you had them talking about city branding and what city branding means. And like under normal circumstances, I was thinking about like, you know, us corporate speak where you're talking about like, Oh, what's our brand going to be? But in the case of Ramallah, like having a city brand, especially considering their importance within Palestine is incredibly important. And like, you just, you felt his pain, kind of trying to grasp the—I don't know—the almost like corporate media slash marketing speak of the idea of city branding, while trying to maintain the idea of Palestine under occupation and what the image and what the message and what everything has to be like. At one point, he said, "You know, like if you look at our stoplights, it has to say Ramallah," and all of that seems to come through with this film and, and and it was just amazing how these little moments that you captured continue to push and, and continue to show that perseverance that solidarity that dignity under agents and agency under occupation
1: you know i feel like so many stories films what have you media about israel palestine about the occupation tend to focus on the very obvious costs of occupation, the, the loss of life, the 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 damage of property, the the idea of terrorism, the idea of of self-determination, the bigger scale issues, which of course are all very important. But I had not really seen that many films that focus on the far more ubiquitous and, and relatable costs of the occupation, like your civic pride, like the ability to walk in this two, three square block radius of your downtown. Feeling safe, having ownership and feeling ownership of the land that you're on and the ability to basically live a complete and happy life not being uh, infringed upon or it being infringed upon by the occupation. And that was something really profound to me is, is you know, like I think that when audiences see the film, Basically, the film takes place in a three-square-block radius, and that's that. And you know, it's it's about this Christmas tree going up in the town plaza in the city hall. That's a block away from that, and the film opens outside of this Cafe de la Paix, which is this beautiful, like French-style espresso cafe. And it's also a a scene uh, that comes up much later, but in a much more different context by the end of the film. And I wanted an audience watching it who'd never been to, to understand the geography because the geography of occupation is really fraught as well. And just the idea of, of civic pride being also an element of resistance was a really powerful notion to explore for me.
2: Yeah, that's something interesting because like throughout the entire process, like you said, it was three blocks. It was very visibly only like three blocks or so, except when they ventured out to see some of the protests and the occupation forces moving in. But like I was looking up the population size and Ramallah is only 35,000 people and like 6.23 square miles total. And, you know, that struck me because like you said, Musa says right at the very beginning that the one thing that he wants to focus on is you can't do without municipal services. And that's what he wants to focus on. That's what he wants his, his thing to be. Like, I'm going to deliver services to people. And even when they're talking about the Christmas tree, what he, and I love that conversation, the debate about what the political message of the tree should be. And he states, we're municipal services first and political messaging second. And, you know, you were there for his entire struggle of like, how, how hard was it for him to try and maintain that where, you know, like he said that he's created a system where Ramallah has become sustainable for the next hundred years. Right. How hard was it for him to maintain that when, like, almost everyone else seemed to be talking about what the larger message of occupation should be? You know, I
1: mean, I think that's one of the more relatable elements of the film is just the position of a mayor in that when something in your town goes well, you say, OK, good. Uh, And when something goes wrong, it's the mayor's fault. And that is probably true worldwide. And I know it's true for me living in New York City uh, that our mayor comes under uh, blame for pretty much anything that can go wrong in this town. And some of that's justified. Some of it may not be. But I think that, you know, Mayor Musa is one of the only elected officials that a Ramallah person would ever vote for in their lifetime. He has term limits. He serves two four. He's in his second of, of a second term of, of four years each. Uh, he will not be able to run again for for mayor, and he and he doesn't want to. And there's a real power to uh, leadership, and an import on, on the idea of leadership, and that's of course worldwide. I think I mean that's obviously that's that's something that in America we think about very much the idea of wanting our elected officials to represent us or wanting to officials to speak for us and. In the context of a place like Palestine, I think there's even more pressure. Someone like Mayor Musa to take a political stance, or to be a diplomat, or to be an ambassador, or to represent the idea of Palestine and all of its multitudes to the rest of the world. Of course, that's impossible. And I feel like one of the reasons that the film does take place in this small radius, basically, is that's Musa's Ramallah. the The, the film is really about Musa's view of Ramallah and his way of trying to run it. I, I, It would have been way outside of my purview or abilities to make a film that kind of encapsulated the, all of the complexity of Ramallah. There are refugee camps on the edge of Ramallah. There are checkpoints not too far from Ramallah. There are settlements ringing Ramallah. I hint at these things. I talk about these things a little bit in the film, and you see a little bit of it, but I was never trying to make a big film. And I think that was a really exciting idea for me when I first set out to make this film. I was thinking to myself, I would love to make a small story, a, a small story, not that's one about Israel-Palestine, one that's about a mayor trying to plan his Christmas celebration. And how does that get stymied? How does that come to fruition? I feel like small stories are, are kind of under the hold in, in documentary. And I think the smaller the story, the more that you have a chance to explore it emotionally for yourself when you're watching. Where there's not many forms of media anymore that we can engage with an emotion for eighty minutes or ninety minutes, and and not be told what to think in the midst of it, and I and I really think that's what's special about nonfiction filmmaking.
0: One question: How did Musa come to become the mayor? Like, how did the process start, and how exactly did you connect with him after he became mayor?
1: Well, he was he was just elected. You know, he ran for office, and it's, there's several different people who ran for the office of mayor, and and he just went, he won. So there were debates and, and there was there's some of these are on YouTube and I watched some of them before I went of just him in debates with people. And he ran on a platform that a lot of people in Ramallah liked and, and wanted to vote for. But I found out about him in his sixth year of being mayor, in his second to last term. And I, I found out about it, again, like I was saying earlier, not so much because of him, but because I was enamored with the city of Ramallah and its complexity. And then just asked my colleague and friends, about him just out of curiosity what's the mayor like and and that's when I just learned more and learned that he had a good sense of humor and learned that people liked him and that he was charismatic and even the people who didn't agree with him would universally say he's not corrupt you know and I think that was a really exciting idea too this idea of like wow like even people who just like we don't even have that in the states the idea of, some, of someone <laughs> saying like oh well he, he may be a lot of things but at least he's not corrupt like that's that seemed it's extraordinarily exciting to me as an American. So he was so that, funny
2: too, yeah. and, and his humor comes across like when they were asking him, "Are you Fatas or ha- Hamas?" and he goes, "I'm PLFP." Like that, everyone would kind of laughed. That was pretty funny.
1: Yeah, and get you it know, for for folks uh, who don't know the the details of that. So he's he's not actually a member of PFLP. He's he's, he's making a joke. He's a he's a member of the FETA political party but the PFLP were a uh, you know a far left political party that was active in the 70s um, and and are much less active now but he's just making a joke in that moment and i think that one one thing that i did appreciate about mayor musa is because of the fact that he's not essentially a party man trying to you know represent the core of the political party that is currently in charge of the Palestinian authority he is talking more like a local politician he, the work that he's doing is about keeping happiness in his city and keeping the city running and keeping the city going and that seemed to me much more apolitical which seemed to me a a much better entry point for people who maybe knew a little bit less about the idea of palestine as a place or as a geopolitical site of conflict uh, to understand the the smallest details of how a city like this could possibly run and realize there's not that much that separates it from any other city except for the the obfuscations of the occupation.
2: There were a couple of instances like where he was having a conversation while Abbas was making a statement in the background and then also the meeting with the prime minister where it seemed like there was some tension there. And I was wondering if that was intentional or if I was just reading into it. Team this sorry. The scene where the prime minister comes to visit him, the Palestinian prime minister, and then there's a, another scene where they're having a conversation where Abbas is delivering a speech in the background, and it seems like there's some tension. Like you were mentioning, like he's a local politician, he's focusing on the municipality, but it seems like there was some inherent—I want to say conflict—but at least a little bit of he, he disagrees with some of the things that the national party was doing. And and was that a correct interpretation? Do you think it's not something I personally was trying to necessarily
1: highlight in the in the material. And I, I'm not necessarily sure it's even present, although I'm sure that there are things that Mayor Musa disagrees with the Palestinian leadership about. And that's common for many people, um, uh, regardless of what political party they're in or, or where they stand politically. But my main goal was to show everything through Musa's eyes and to cycle all of these events happening and all these speeches being given and all of the political rhetoric through this micro lens, because I felt like we're so used to seeing Palestine at best through this lens of, you know, the, it's just a, a, a sort of landscape of one-dimensional suffering victims. And at, at worst, as a landscape of religious zealots and terrorists. And I don't agree with either interpretation. And I wanted to add, uh, basically the film was just to add some imagery to the idea of what Palestine looks like. And I, and I feel like through Musa's eyes, you get to see a, a complexity that, that you just normally don't get exposed to, but you also get to experience it as though you know it. And I feel like the the films, you know, you don't need a, a PhD in history. I feel like I, like I have the knowledge so that you don't have to, I feel like. And that's the trick of academia sometimes, is I think that sometimes people get into academia and they think to themselves like, okay, well, since I know all of this, I then want to teach it to everybody else. But sometimes the best thing about having a great education in something is that you can then simplify it for people who don't have to like go to class essentially to, to be entertained. And I really wanted to make the film as simple as possible in terms of what you're following and what you're learning.
0: It would be really interesting since you talked about education. Are there public schoolings in Ramallah? What are they like? And what about opportunities like university? And wh- how much of that is in the purview of the mayor's office?
1: Uh, well, there there are public schools and, and you see some in the film. And there is several public universities. Musa went to Eight University, which is... About twenty minutes north of Ramallah, which is the one of the larger, if not the largest, public university in Palestine, but they're not within the ma- the purview of the mayor. The same way that NYU wouldn't be under Bill De Blasio's leadership, or any other university wouldn't really be under the leadership of the mayor specifically. There are departments of education, ministries of education uh, that would handle that on a national level, but that's not really what the what the mayor has to do. What it, what he is responsible for is as you see in the film, helping schools get new doors and helping them meet their budget. And again, these are the municipal responsibilities that are just part of any mayor's job, which to me is what I wanted to focus on. And, and that comes back a lot through the film as as the sort of um there's a humor to the film as as John was talking about, that is there to basically amplify the circumstances of the occupation in that The the humorous element, for example, you know, you're in the first 15 minutes, a lot of the story of the film is how is this Christmas celebration going to go off, where Musa and his staff are trying to plan a Christmas celebration with a tree and a flash mob and Santas that repel from the rooftops, and this is a really big storyline at the beginning of the film. And I think you're maybe watching that in the first 15 minutes thinking to yourself, huh, this seems like a strange way for someone to spend their time in Palestine. But I think by the end of the film, as certain things happen in the storyline, you start to understand that these are the ways in which an elected official in Palestine can actually exercise their power. This is the limits of their power to try to run their city, to try to run their city as though they have a country. And that's really what the film orbits around. So the small minutiae of, Going to put doors in a new school and fix the doors and paint and paint a volleyball court. I think at first you think to yourself, "Oh, what a strange thing for a story to focus on." This seems kind of small, but ultimately, that smallness reinforces the stakes of what life is like under occupation.
2: Yeah, that really comes to a head, I think, with the meeting with the German delegation, where you know they're asking. Musa, like, okay, what can we do to bring you and the Israelis together? And everyone in the room, except for that one guy, was like, yeah, that's not going to happen because the, the lack of dignity. And at that point, you know, like you said, you, they were talking about the daily indignities that they have to live through. And he mentioned the 16-year-old soldier. And then he also mentioned the fact that it took them 15 years just to get a permit to build a cemetery. Could you get more into that? Yeah. I mean, well, I think the, the, the burden typically falls on people
1: from the global south. To explain their suffering to the rest of the world, and to convince the rest of the world that they're in need of help, and the burden also falls on people from the global south to do more work than the than the people who are essentially causing the circumstances that they're in, and they have to rise up. And this is like a very uh, this is a trend that I think is hoisted on Palestinians a lot. And the, this meeting that you're describing with a German delegation that comes to talk to to Musa. I found really fascinating because it's these extraordinarily well-intentioned German parliamentarians who are saying, you know, look, we understand that you're, you know, you're occupied and you have to resist the occupation, but don't you think you're doing it wrong? Shouldn't you come to the table a little bit more? Shouldn't you essentially just stop being so proud and and bow to the will of the people and and sit down and have a conversation? And this is a request that is that is ubiquitous of people who are basically colonized um, to say, listen, I know you're hurt, but can't you just bring yourself up? And this is a conversation that we have in the States about disenfranchised communities in the United States who are being asked to do more work and to lift themselves up more and disregarding hundreds of years of, of endemic and historic mistreatment that has created circumstances that provide for inequity. So I feel like the, this scene to me was was, was a great example of something that I knew had to be in the film because it spoke to a wider experience. It spoke to the experience of Palestinians, but it also spoke to this idea of dignity. And and Musa says it so perfectly in the film, just basically saying, you know, this is about dignity. If I have to, you know, take off my clothes in front of a 16-year-old soldier who's asking me to strip um, and I'm, you know, the mayor of Ramallah, like if if that's the, the bargaining place that I'm in as a Palestinian citizen, that's not an acceptable starting point.
2: And when he said, the, you know, they were in the car a little bit after that and they were driving around, and he was arguing with someone in the backseat who was saying, you know, he's met people from Nigeria who say, you know, we, we feel your pain. And they were talking about how we can make the world more aware. And like you said, this typically falls on the third world or the, the developing world to do this rather than the Western civilizations that have been doing the exploiting for decades and eons. And it just seems to me that it's so indicative of like what we see in American conversation about tone, where we are constantly telling Black Lives Matter and other movements to modify their tone to accommodate a more comfortable class or a more comfortable, uh, I guess, whiteness would be the best descriptor of it. And and I wonder if he's ever considered that, you know, like he's saying we need to find a tone, but at the same time, like you're you're living under occupation, the tone shouldn't be the thing. And yet it's being forced on them from outside that their tone needs to be moderated.
1: Well, absolutely, John. And I feel like what, that's something you, you've hit on something that we were talking about at the beginning of, of our conversation, which is this idea of how to brand Ramallah in this way, that where that brand that, that Ramallah is functioning under is is basically a, a Western-friendly brand. And, and having this conversation about how the city looks and using English slogans and making the city look friendly to outsiders and attracting tourism, this is basically a performance of respectability for the West. And Musa knows this, and, and Musa does perform respectability for the West in in some conscious ways, and some unconscious ways. He he wears a suit, he speaks English, he's charming, he's charismatic. He he travels around the world, as you see in other scenes in the film, essentially pleading his cause to Westerners who want to, in exchange, you know, provide him with choirs or theater groups or football teams as sort of a of a, of a you know like we want to support the occupy we want to support this occupied country, therefore we'll will give you a choir uh, sort of thing, which, again, is also performing a certain kind of aid that we don't really question much in the West, because that, that's that basically our, our our pattern, our pattern of intervention. And so, so yeah, Mus- Musa's sp- in very many ways, caught in this net of having to perform respectability, and uh, the West rejects him anyway, and the, the West rejects Palestine anyway. Looking for more interviews with filmmakers, academics, journalists, and activists who challenge the Western narrative? Stop listening to Blackjacket wearing dupes peddling oil company talking points and tune into our podcast and read our newsletters on Historically Substack. There you can patronize our show and keep us free from corporate backing. So please go to historically.substack.com and check out our other shows and newsletters, and you can help support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com.
2: Yeah, it's the parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement, like we saw of the uprisings over the summer, and then all of a sudden, every politician in the Democratic circle is saying how that cost them votes, and it's like, no, that that's injustice, you know. And and to see him quite deftly, honestly, playing this game and, and knowing that the outcome. For Western whiteness is going to be the same, where it's going to be the blame any blame is going to be put on him. I mean, like we saw in your film the raid at the end, or even the one in the beginning as a direct result of the marching, you saw soldiers just indiscriminately fire, And none of the blame or any of the discussion internationally is ever put on them. And, and I think that, that dichotomy and that that relation to how we're seeing, you know, the occupied forces within our own Western countries is striking
1: absolutely and i feel like there's this scene you're talking about where there is some clashes at the at the end of the film that are in this you know square three square block radius where the film takes place it i think it kind of feels almost like a defilement of this area that you've come to love by the end of the movie but a lot of the damage is caused by rocks being thrown at the invading occupying army and i've heard from some people perhaps a little bit more right wing than i am Watching the film and saying, "Oh well, I mean, they caused the damage. Uh, you know, the rocks were thrown and that caused the damage." And it's uh, it's it's I hear the same argument in the states when it comes to Black Lives Matter protesters saying, "Oh well, you know, they, like the the violence is historic. The violence isn't present day. the 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 wounds are present day, but the violence is historic." And uh, and that's a, I think a very difficult thing to track because I don't think our national zeitgeist really understands how to look at history as though it's present tense, I think we we are very reactionary. When we see a broken window, we don't think about all the things that went into that broken window, all the rage and disenfranchisement that went into that broken window. And as a result, we see protests in other parts of the world, and we think we understand them before we know a, a single thing about them.
2: Yeah. And, and it's, it's really... When and you can see how often in the film, even how often American politics like inject themselves into this conflict. I mean, like the middle section of the film deals with Trump's announcement that the Jerusalem embassy is going to move, and then like a little bit later, they're talking about a a visit from the Prince of England, and that has everything to do with that movement announcement. Like the magnanimity that he extended towards the Prince had everything to do with the fact that the UK condemned the movement, it seemed like. Do you think that's a, a good assessment?
1: Well, I think what's interesting about the the scene when when Prince William is, is planning his visit and Musa and his counselor are talking about it is even in, in that context, there's some disagreement as to whether this is a good thing or not. There's this conflict within Musa and his own central staff, which is like, well, yeah, it's it's a nice thing. What could go wrong? Uh, Prince William's going to come and kick a couple footballs footballs and, and go back home. At a couple yeah, but times. problems
2: the, start with the UK. I mean, they said that quite clearly. It's like 100 years of problems start with the UK.
1: Right. And then there's, a, yeah, like you're saying, there's other people in that room saying, like, listen, no, the Balfour Declaration 100 years ago is the reason we're in this mess in the first place. That it, it predates Israel. That, that, that's the reason that we were occupied. We, they were one of the original occupiers, and we're going to roll the red carpet out for them. And, and, and so uh, th- there's no winner here when it comes to how to perform. Friendliness for Western audiences because you're, you're, you're basically debasing yourself as an occupied country. And I think that's the endless frustration that those who are living in an occupied place are, are feeling when, you know, for example, the entire, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just go right into it. The, the entire world begged Palestine to abandon violent protest. They did. They started the BDS movement. The BAS movement is a nonviolent protest movement, and that's denounced even more than the violence ever was. So it's it's a really loaded problem for Westerners to grapple with anti-colonialization anti-colonial, movements in the rest of the world because they don't fit our language.
2: You know, it's tough because westerners don't have uh, to me it seems like westerners especially americans don't have us any sense of history and you know like we have goldfish brain we forget what's going on five minutes ago let alone what happened you know uh, who what americans gonna know what the balfour agreement actually was and what that entailed and how that whole how that kicked off everything and then what happened after that and you know to see that being discussed not just by by city officials when i'm, I'm thinking like my the city i live in is bigger and none of them would know any of those types of, of uh, ramifications or any of that. It was really, really touching because it, it made you realize that this is, while he's just like he said, we're focusing on municipalities, we're focusing on what services we can bring to the people. He's also dealing with the fact that because he's an in international occupation, he cannot get sewage built. And there was this one scene where they were talking about the olive trees and how like the settlers were burning olive trees and also the water is contaminated because of sewage. And he seems to blow by the settlers bur- uh, burning olive trees, even though you can tell he's like somewhat pained by it because that's something that he can't control. But he can try and get someone to come and take care of the sewage contaminating the water.
1: So much of the film is based on the things that Musa can control. And you know, not to give it away for anyone who hasn't seen the film, who's listening to this, I feel like the the real denouement of the film, uh, the, the real core of, of the film's ending is is based on this idea this idea of well, what is within musa's power to to control and you know that 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 element of not being able to deal with certain things and and trying to just throw your hands up in the air and also trying to find humor within that I, I found that to be something so relatable among palestinian folks that i'd be spending time with over the course of making this film and i filmed for about two years and the way i would you know compare it to something that other people might have experienced is and forgive the the weird comparison on the on the face of it, but you know, if you're if, if you have a loved one who ha- had cancer, um, who passed away from cancer or uh, a or degenerative disease of some sort, you know, and you spent, you know, years living with that or, or a long time living with that, humor sneaks into that stuff as a coping mechanism. And they'll make jokes or you will make jokes or your family will make jokes. And there's a way in which you you try to use humor as a way to distance yourself from the horrendous reality of a circumstance and also a way to make sense of of things and to just handle the daily grind of trying to get through something that is otherwise very difficult to get through and to a certain degree i think that i mean i, I think a lot of palestinian folks would would agree with me if i were to describe the occupation as a cancer on palestine and i feel that in one of the ways to deal with that for many People who have been living under these circumstances for so many decades, have seen things get worse and worse, not better and better, is to find the ways that they can exercise autonomy and the ways that they can exercise some degree of of self-respect and dignity. And in the eyes of Musa Hadid, the way that he can do that is to try to make his city as beautiful and as functional as possible. Unfortunately, that is one of the hardest things to do when you live under occupation.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of points where you know they they brought in a water truck to spray down some roadway um, because of contamination, and it was because the occupation wasn't allowing construction vehicles in uh, through the checkpoints. And you look at that, and then you look at like the the couple of scenes where they're showing the settlements. And I had a couple of questions for just the logistics of that. The settlements are literally a stone's throw away from Ramallah, and yet you don't, I, you didn't cover it, but. How are they dealing with electricity? How are they dealing with sewage? How are they dealing with any of the municipal services that they would be provided if they were under the jurisdiction of Ramallah? Like, do they have a separate water treatment facility or no? Well, so it depends
1: on each circumstance. And I can't say that I'm an expert on, on how the settlements are conducting their municipal services. But I do know that often these are paid for by the Israeli government. Water is purchased from Palestine. I'm from Israel by Palestine, you know, so water is being brought in to, at, at a cost, you know, like this is, for example, something that is not free for Palestinians. Water has to be bought. The sewage treatment, uh, there have been many reports of settlers illegally. And when I say illegally, I mean that really strongly in the in the biggest sense of the phrase, because the settlements are in fact illegal under international law. They They are not technically allowed to be there, but that has not stopped the, Existence of them the same way that protesters not legally being allowed to seize the Capitol building has not stopped protesters doing that. So I feel like I should preface everything I'm saying with the fact that this is illegal. But the the settlers are often using sewage treatment facilities and often using land dumps and bringing their trash the land dumps that are created by the Palestinian Authority created. By the West, but created inside of the West Bank for the use of Palestinians. And settlers are often using these these landfills. This is common. This is very common and it's very murky and it's very complex. And again, I can't speak to it with any degree of mastery of the facts as to what uh, the settlements do on a regular basis for their municipal needs, like electricity. But I do know that there is a literal state that supports them, and there is not a literal state that supports Palestinians.
2: And I mean, you get through that throughout the entire thing where it's, you know, there's a a very poignant scene where he talks about how the rest of the world operates and how sometimes he wishes that Ramallah could operate that way. And, you know, it just made me think about sovereignty and agency. And I know that that was something you were pushing with the film is to be contemplating that. And it really struck me. And like you said, just the little ways and the things that he was doing, like he was literally during a, a large scale protest, he was literally driving around and putting out fires. And, you know, I, I, I've been as a project manager for a very long period of time, and I myself spent a great deal of time putting out fires, it, but only once was it literal, and it seemed like that's something that he does a lot.
1: The degree to which Musa is involved in the day-to-day is astounding. He is never off. He, he's extraordinarily hardworking. He's constantly going around the city doing exactly that. You know, I like to think of myself as someone who has a decent amount of energy, and I was completely exhausted by this guy in his mid-50s just running around the city on a regular basis. It was really re- remarkable to see the work that he puts into keeping his city running. And it's because he cares. And it's because it's a small enough city, as you said, where you can walk the length of it in 25 minutes. Uh, you'll recognize people that you saw 10 minutes before. I spent over, I spent on, on and off two years there. I, I couldn't walk down the street without seeing a friend or Seeing someone who I'd been filming at some point or another. There's only so many bars, there's only so many coffee shops, there's only so many nightclubs, there's only so many restaurants, and and you and you really get to know the city. And Musa's from there, his family's from there. His family is one of the founding families of Ramallah, one of the five founding Christian families of Ramallah. It's his town. He loves it and he wants it to succeed.
2: And that's very like very, very visible from almost everything he does, including like when he's He's messing around. It seemed like he was messing around with the fountain music and lights a lot. Was that <laughs> was that something that seemed to be a hobby of his? Well, it was is it a very exciting thing for him,
1: yeah, to have that fountain working, and which becomes a really big theme in the film, yeah.
2: There was one point where he was doing some construction, and uh, or he was coming and dealing with some construction, and you know, someone off said said you're changing Old Town. What what was Musa's thoughts on the the change? Because you said that Ramallah has changed remarkably since like when you went. What was his thoughts on the rapid change and development? I think that Musa
1: really enjoys seeing the growth of Ramallah as a as a big city. I don't think that I don't think that Musa wants Ramallah to look like Dubai. I don't think Musa believes that Ramallah could ever look like Dubai, or or that that would ever even be a dream of his. Uh, I think that he appreciates the character and the soul of of Ramallah always want that to shine through. But he also wants to develop the city. And as a result, there are some people who think that development is not necessarily good. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in New York. I could look to the progressives in my city and the moderates in my city who go to war all the time around the notion of development and what's okay and what's not okay. What's good for business is not what's good for people, as some would argue. And what's good for people is Not necessarily what's good for the future of our city the others would argue and it's it's thorny and and that's where a lot of his detractors come from is from folks who are just like oh let's not develop so much let's let's not grow but musa's politically and and socially interested in seeing his city get larger and and getting uh more successful uh financially and socially and more progressive socially And and financially, and and that's uh that's where he's put his work into. That's what's important to
2: him. Yeah, and it seems to be beloved, like many people stopping him multiple times when that guy forced him to go to lunch. Like there there was one part later in the film where they were talking about a Facebook event getting a lot of views, and there were good and bad comments, but from the people in Ramallah, it seemed like he was extremely popular. So was his re-election kind of like a landslide? And does he have a future doing something for Ramallah? beyond being termed out.
1: Musa is very excited to take a vacation when his term's up, which will be at the end of this year. I think he wants to do a little holiday, and I'm sure he'll do something. I couldn't imagine Musa doing something unrelated to helping his city once he's out of office as mayor. I'm sure he'll find something to do that would be fairly fulfilling to him. Uh, but I, I know with almost certitude that once he is out of office, he is probably going to kick it on a beach somewhere.
2: He deserves it. Like you said, he he constantly moves. And I can't imagine following that guy around for two years. He must, like you said, you must be exhausted. There was one part towards the end when we we're viewing the raid that was happening, the soldiers were busting into people's homes and busting into people's offices with the pretense of taking surveillance footage. Was, was that a ruse? Do you know? Well, that's complicated. I
1: mean, was it a ruse? Uh, I, I believe that they probably were looking for footage. Um, did they have to storm into Ramallah in the downtown area to at, at around dinner time uh, in the center of the city to do that with with armored vehicles, tanks, and riot gear? Uh, of course not. No, that was very much a show of power, which is which is very common. It's not common to do that at dinner time in downtown Ramallah, but there are regular raids uh, on an almost nightly basis in Ramallah. Which, by the way, again not to overuse this word uh, like we're playing taboo or something, but. That is illegal. Uh, Ramallah is Area A under the Oslo Accords, which means is of the authority of the Palestinian Authority, which means that the uh, military forces of Israel are not allowed to enter without. Well, they're just not allowed to, but they do it anyway. Uh, there are other jurisdictions within the West Bank that are co-owned or owned by the Israeli authorities. Uh, and, and so that would be. More permissible, but this is the the context of occupation is such that the rules are really kind of out the window. So no, I mean, like I think that ever since Trump moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it it basically emboldened a lot of the occupation forces to act more aggressively. They've been doing that for quite some time. Uh, certainly helped. There's really, you know, that you know, the United States has basically been despite everything, the main partner in peace for the Palestinian people over the last several decades, we've and we basically in the last four years abandoned that partnership almost entirely. So what you're seeing is is very much the result of that.
2: There was a, a pan over a billboard that was from USAID that uh SAID that talked about a roadway being built. So and I, I know a little bit of the history of the US trying to broker peace and along those lines, but I didn't really consider them to be an an ally, much like I don't consider you know, U.S. police forces domestically to be an ally. But I can see how when you're talking about a brutal boot of occupation versus some sort of restraint, I mean, it's kind of like how the police were operating before Trump became president. Well, you know, the has invested a great deal of time into the concept of
1: peace with Israel and Palestine and the escalation of conflict. But it's also of course, gives more money to uh, the state of Israel than any other nation in the world. And even our COVID stimulus bill, which was going to be uh, voted on a week ago, had $500 million earmarked for Israel within the bill itself. So this is a very, very much a, a, a live wire part of our of our national occupation. Um, our national uh, occupation with Israel is what I mean, uh, to use the other meaning of the word. But I, I, I think that Palestinians have always been at least... At least, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a of a, a bunch of Palestinian folks I talked to, it's it's kind of a nominal inclusion in that process. It's always been a sort of uh, attempt to to meet the ideas and needs of Palestinians, but a lot of that work comes from aid organizations. And there was actually a scene that I cut from the film, which was a scene where uh, an ambassador from U.S. was in a room with a bunch of other aid organizations and the minister of local affairs, the Palestinian minister for local affairs, and. The Palestinian Minister for, Minister for Local Affairs is making this very impassioned pitch of, you know, giving some more money. That things are very hard right now with the political climate. This was in 2018, 2019, I think. And the and the meeting is about is about to end. And the ambassador from U.S. Aid says, "Well, you know, I'm sorry to end this meeting on a bad note, but due to the recent decisions of President Trump, we are uh, cutting back our U.S. Aid program here in Palestine. We had 54 members here. Uh, it's going to be down to two, and." these are a list of all the programs that we are stopping. And he handed out a, a a PDF document that was eight pages of all the programs that would be cut by USAID uh, over the course of the next year. And so, so we, we really, we really abandoned Palestine. And one of the, one of the reasons I basically made this film is to appeal to what's left of American consciousness and to, again, Add some imagery to the idea of what Palestine is so that the next time you think of it, perhaps you're not thinking of this one dimensional image of terror, this one dimensional image of suffering, this, the, you know, the, a camel on a sand dune with the sun going up behind it, but thinking about a place that reminds you of the place that you call home, reminds you of a place that you know, because now you know it, because now you've felt what people are going through here in a way that's relatable to you, because you've seen that the main thing they're trying to do here is Take care of the school. The main thing they're trying to do here is pave the roads, put on a Christmas show, stuff that is basically a soft entry point to get you thinking. Well, maybe I don't know what the Balfour Declaration is before this film, but now I'm curious, <laughs> and I feel like that that degree of self interrogation. I'm, I'm basically counting on, and I'm, I'm counting on an audience that doesn't have to know
2: everything; they just want to know more. Yeah, and I mean, there were moments where just by watching, you had a shot where it's like, oh my God, they have a Popeye's there? <laughs> and even I was struck by that. And and I've been thinking about reading about this issue for a long time. Now, was there any other things that you cut from the film or anything that you captured, but you left out because you had that specific goal that you just mentioned in mind?
1: Well, for the former, absolutely. You know, I filmed 350 hours of footage for this movie and the movie's 89 minutes, which, uh, you know, that's not a great ratio, obviously, for for the work I put in. But it was a necessary thing because I wanted to cast a really wide net. And so I filmed so much material for this film, which I knew would never make it in. Some of it was research material, some of which I thought would make it in but couldn't. Some of it had to do with... I I was filming some of the council members, the city council members. I was filming in the refugee camps. I was filming in the radio stations. I was filming at senior citizens' homes. I was... Filming with other people who could have been main characters but weren't, or making a broader piece. And again, it was—I I knew that at the heart of the story was was Musa Hadid was the mayor of Ramallah because of what was special about it and the journey that he was going on was really compelling to me. But I wanted to film as much as I could to learn as well for myself because the films I make are basically journeys for me too. If I'm not going on a journey, how can I expect an audience to go on a journey? You know, if I start a film knowing exactly what I want the film to say or knowing exactly what the film's going to be, then where's the discovery that an audience is going to feel and the sense of wonderment that I want an audience to feel. And not every film is trading in this notion of discovery and wonderment, but I knew this one was because I'm basically showing you a place that you either think you know or you don't know at all and telling you you still have so much to learn. And there's still so much new here to unpack and complicated feelings to feel and, and nuance and bittersweet stuff regarding the feeling of being in an occupied place and trying to persevere regardless of that. And so so to have that feeling of discovery, I needed to discover. And I needed to film so much more than I knew would ever be in the film because I knew it ultimately solidify what was exciting to me about the story.
2: You made a very beautiful film. And, and honestly, when I sat down to watch it, it was completely different than what I was expecting. And it was very touching. And I want to thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Before you go, I guess we can't see it at the theaters. How would people watch your film?
1: So, the film is still going to be available in virtual cinemas starting next week. Um, it's currently available in virtual cinemas. You can find the details of those on mayorfilm.com. And it's been playing in, I think, now about 110 virtual cinemas across the country. So, you can look for virtual cinemas within your own area, or there are some links that are nationwide. But you can either support a local virtual cinema by doing that, or You can wait until the spring where the film will be available on transactional video on demand, such as, you know, iTunes and and things like that.
0: Also, what are the next projects for you after this film? What are you thinking of doing next?
1: Fortunately, they are all classified.
0: (laughs) That's really funny. Um, And one more thing, like how do people reach you on social media?
1: Well, I'm the only David Ossett in the world. So you just got to Google my name and all my stuff comes up.
0: Okay, we'll put a link below. Thanks again. And please come back when you finish your next, if you are continuing to do films and you finish your next film, please come back to our show to talk about it because this was one of the most delightful films we've watched in the show.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me and I'm glad we could connect again. Uh, Just let me know when the episode goes up and I'll, I'll share it out.
2: Yeah, it's really great getting a chance to talk to you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sean.
0: Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.